Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 524, it is Tuesday, October 5th, 2010. And today we're going to talk about building your personal seed vault. That's right, building your personal seed vault. And the reason we're going to do that is I think there's a tremendous opportunity for us to take the opportunity that we have right now, where there are so many wonderful varieties of seeds available, so many things that we can grow you know, right out in the open and, and use not just our own property, but we'll even talk about how to use the property of others today with permission and without permission to propagate new uh, lines of seed and save that and use that in the future for the ability to produce food and not only to produce food, but in some instances to be food. And that just goes a long way toward our self-sufficiency and self-reliance. But it also, I think, collectively represents something that needs to be done. And that is a lot of the diversity that's out there needs to be preserved. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure this show is here for you five days a week. Monday through Friday, most of the year. I might take a week off here and there, but pretty much it's always on for you guys. Uh, sponsor of the day, number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth Tactical brings you all the things you need to live that tactical lifestyle from Magpul magazines to Maxpedition bags and everything else you can think of. Really cool stuff, really high quality gear, only the best at Sawtooth Tactical. They really go out of their way to take care of our audience. Make sure you tell them that... Uh, You uh, found them on the Survival Podcast, and they usually throw a little extra thing in there for you. Next up today is MERS-Radio.com. Yes, MERS-Radio.com. MERS radios are a secondary means of communication to give you a uh, you know an average range of up to about two miles. They work as basically like a hand handheld walkie-talkie, and they also have the option of having a base station, which stays plugged in and on all the time. So what makes them different? You can also add in with them. Uh, motion detectors that are placed at various locations on your property, creating up to four sectors, four activity sectors. You have more than four sensors, by the way. You just only have four uh, sectors. And what happens is when something moves in that sector that's not supposed to be there and the detector detects it, it sends a message automated back to either your handheld or your base station and it says, alert sector one or alert sector two. And then you know something's going on out there and if you don't have like people out there working or something, you know something's not right. For me right now, one of the things it does is tells me every time Max the dog is trying to get out of the gate and escape. It also tells me if somebody's out on my front porch when I don't want them there in the evening. So I think it is really a great addition to any homestead, but I really believe that it really will help you out when you have you know the acre or more type of homestead. 
The people with like 30, 40 acres, you need this. This should be on your property. You should have motion detectors out there. You should have secondary means of communication. If something happens to somebody on the other end of the property, you know, everybody can be on the other end and have no idea. Cell phones are not always reliable. Um, this is a great secondary means of communication. I really recommend you check it out. Remember, the best way to find all our sponsors, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, or as sometimes I say, thesurvivalpodcast.com, depending on what part of the country you're from, and click on our sponsors' banners in the right-hand margin. Uh, next up today, make sure you check out uh, all our social media options, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. I did shoot four videos at the Bug Out location over the weekend. I will try to get the first of those videos up today. Good stuff. I've got a review of the Lifesaver Jerry Can coming on YouTube. Uh, I've, got a, uh, I've got a review of the Cancellator uh, Pantry model. I've got a little bit of a video from... Uh, from my uh, deer feeder and a little bit of information on deer feeders. And one other thing we'll talk about. Uh, we'll just keep that as a cliffhanger for you, though. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, I also want to remind you about our special show real quick coming up uh, on episode 550. We are almost halfway there from 500 to 550. That's going to be all about you. Listen to the one-year anniversary show. That's the kind of show this is going to be. Call 866-65-THINK. Tell me, tell the world what prepping, survivalism, self-sufficiency, modern survivalism, and the Survival Podcast has meant to you and your life over the past year or two and be featured on that show. That show is going to be all about listeners, and I don't care if it goes two hours. I'm not taking anybody out. If you call into that show... Anything other than a technical failure, like, you know, you're on a cell phone and you can't be heard, you will be featured on that show. Please, I'd like to have as many people as possible. Those shows make a big impact for new listeners to understand what this stuff really means. And with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Um, you know, as I actually went to put this show together about two weeks ago. And I went into my blog and started putting the notes together. And I don't know what happened, but... You know, I forgot about it. I just forgot about putting the show together. And the other day, I was, you know, it, you know, setting up a new show, and and I looked and I saw there's a draft. And I thought, well, there's nothing that I have in draft right now. So what is that? I pulled it up, and it only had like two sentences in it. Uh, and I believe it said episode 516. So this show was supposed to come out, you know, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And again, I don't know what sidelined me from it, but it was something I was thinking of one day, one of those, my little brainstorms, probably driving around in the car, and I thought we really need to do a show not on seed saving, because we've done that before, and we probably need to do another show on seed saving, and we'll talk about that a little bit today, uh, but we need to do a show on seed vaults. And when I say a vault, I, I want to be clear what I mean. Um, I don't mean necessarily a great big giant safe you know, with with a, a cooler built into it or, or, you know, a reefer van hidden into a side of a mountain or a cave or what vault would generally imply. Um, and when you think of the big multinational seed vaults that they're putting away now, you might, you know, think of that. I just simply mean a store of value in the form of seed that you keep as part of your preps. Where and how you keep that is up to you with some rules if you want the seed to stay viable that we'll talk about today. But I just want to be real clear up front that when I say vault, I don't necessarily mean that it's all locked up. I do mean that it's prized by you, it's valued by you, and it's properly protected and cared for by you. The vault is something personal. It's something that you choose, but it has to have those elements. You have to care for it. You have to value it. You have to protect it. You have to defend it. You have to realize its importance. Without that, it's not a vault. Okay. 
Uh, with that out of the way, let's talk about why we're going to do this in the first place. I, when I look at this, I realize that governments, corporations, and international organizations are all developing seed vaults, and they're doing it for many reasons. One is that seeds in and of themselves are life. They feed us, and they are the way species of plants survive and continue to propagate themselves. So seeds are life, and without life, we have nothing. So when we preserve seeds, we're literally preserving life. Now, it's not human life. It's not even animal life. I, I guess most people would tell you it's not even sentient life, though I do believe that there's an innate intelligence in plant life. It is not a, it is not even the awareness that, let's say, a dog or even, I think, even an amoeba has. But there is an innate intelligence there that's being preserved. There's a, a way. It's not just an accident that a tree seed that falls onto the ground knows to lay dormant until spring and not to sprout right away. There's an innate intelligence we're preserving when we preserve seeds along with that life. Uh, the second is, while the government and all these corporations are telling us that GMO crops, genetically modified crops, are safe, they're actually aware of the damage potential they pose. Even if they don't pose the health risks that we believe they do, they're aware of the fact that they have the potential to wipe out entire varieties of plants through cross-pollination and, 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 and then from people that pick up and start using GMOs that stop propagating the old seed stocks and realize that just on a, you know, preserving, uh, varieties that it, right now GMOs are a threat to that. The third is that due to monopolization and marketing by seed companies, many varieties are simply no longer being grown. And that means that that variety itself is in danger of extinction and forever being lost to history. So science itself is saying, hey, look, if we want to know what this particular heirloom variety of pole bean looks like 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, we better save some of them because they're not going to be here. It's an admission that we're losing it. And it's, you know, anybody with a brain can look back a hundred years and see what we've already lost. And the, the last one, and the most important, I think, for us to understand, to give us the motivation to do this, is seeds are the ability to produce food and energy. That's what seeds are, their ability to produce food and energy. I'll explain that a little bit more in a second. But what I want you to understand first is that food and energy are forms of wealth. Think about that. If you have food, you have wealth. If you have energy, you have wealth. The greatest stores of wealth in the world today are food and energy. If you asked me, and you said, Jack, we will give you 1% of any two industries in the world, 1% of the money that changes hands in only two industries, what would they be? I would say energy and food. And I would immediately become the next day the wealthiest human being that ever lived on the planet. Not that that's my goal or anything, but if you're going to offer it and I'm going to take it, that's what I would want, food and energy. There is more wealth in those two things than anything else in the world. So if those are the two primary concepts of wealth, if they're the two primary ways that wealth is stored, and we sit and we worry about the economy and our future and the government pissing away our future and all of these other things, then doesn't it make sense that we should focus internally within our own families on the two things that in the world are considered the greatest stores of wealth out there. And when we look at seeds versus their production, 
I just had Chris Martinson on a couple weeks ago, and we talked about first, second, and third order wealth. And what Chris said is that first order wealth is something like land, rich farmland, or land that has coal underneath it, or, or you know, anything that you can hold on to that has the potential to produce something, right? That, that is a productive piece of something. And that second order wealth is when we take that first order wealth and we produce something with it. So we extract the coal. Right? And then the coal is second order wealth. Well, we plant the field and we harvest the corn and the corn is second order wealth. Well, what I've realized is something that seeds are actually first order wealth. In most instances. We're going to talk about some overlap between seed and food today, but in reality, when you look at a very small packet of seeds, let's say a half a pound of seed, um, that doesn't seem like a lot and it really isn't. If, even if it's an edible seed, a half a pound of corn, How long is a half a pound of corn going to help even one person subsist? How much money can you receive going to third order wealth, getting paper wealth or third order wealth for a half a pound of corn? The answer is not much. But if we plant a half a pound of corn, we take care of it, we, we take that first order wealth and we convert it to second order wealth, which is the harvest, which is a, a harvest from the first order wealth. How much corn can we produce with a half a pound of corn? We, we might produce 20 pounds or more from a half a pound. In fact, we probably would produce in the order of around 40 pounds from a half a pound of seed. Isn't that really amazing when you think about it? Maybe 50 pounds. You know, we're going to lose some to pests and crop failure and things like that, but 40 to 50 pounds of production from a half a pound. When we look at certain other things, it's, uh, it, it's even more dramatic. Uh, you can plant certain varieties of amaranth. I planted Golden Giant this year. And uh, I got close to a pound of seed per he per plant. Those that are familiar with amaranth, a single seed is a little bit smaller than a sesame seed. So by holding a first order wealth of a single grain of amaranth, I'm able to produce a pound of it. So what will a pound of amaranth produce? It almost boggles the mind. See, that's the thing about seeds. They have this immense potential within them. So, I mean, we have to look at seeds as a multiplier of wealth as well. We can hold this very small amount of seed of, as first-order wealth, and if we properly harness it and use it in the future, it can produce a massive amount of new seed, and it can produce food. And I think that that's one of the interesting things about seed – Seed is one of the very few sustainable forms of wealth. Think about that. Any other type of wealth you have is, is seldom very sustainable. Uh, certainly once you go into uh, third order wealth, it's, it's almost completely unsustainable. Paper wealth, once spent, is gone. Uh, to have sustainable wealth in a paper variety, you have to have basically a, a couple million dollars, and then maybe you can make enough money on the interest, which is even tough to do anymore. But seeds, by using them to produce more wealth, you produce more seeds. Why do you think companies like Monsanto want to basically totally control that? And basically say, no, you can't save your seed anymore, you have to get it from us. Well, we've got better seeds, but you can't save them. We'll make them kill themselves, they won't reproduce. If you do save them, you'll be violating our patent and we will sue you and take everything you have. Because they're trying to monopolize one of the very few forms of sustainable wealth that there is in the world. That's why it should be important for us to save our own seed. 
Another thing we have to realize is that many seeds are actually food, and I think these should make up a huge portion of the bulk of your seed vaults. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can go out and buy wheat that's for propagation, you know, that hasn't been toasted or roasted or anything like that. It's just grain. It's just wheat. And you can take that grain and you can throw it in your grinder and you can turn it on, or you can turn the hand crank like my grinder works, and out of the other side of that comes flour, and you can make bread out of it, or you can crack it and cook it like a cereal, you can make bulgur, there's just so many things you can do with wheat, but you know what else you can do with it? You can plant it in the ground and grow more wheat. Now, if you go to the supermarket and buy a pound of whole grain wheat, it may or may not sprout for you, and it may or may not produce without knowing its variety. But if you buy direct from a farmer a huge sack of, of wheat uh, from a known variety that is not some kind of hybrid that's not going to reproduce or something like that, um, it is as much food as it is seed. And it has an immense storage life. You know, stored properly, it can store 20 years, and it can still be viable seed as well as food. Its germination rate will go down, but it will still produce. And we'll talk about germination rates more in a bit. But I think that there are certain seeds that are foods that we need to have large portions of for storage and for propagation. And they are basically grains and beans and, and, and what you would call hybrid seeds, I guess. That's not the right word for it. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but amaranth would be an example. We always call amaranth grain. We always call... Uh, Quinoa grain. We, we, we call, um, I think quinoa actually is a grain, but uh, what is it, like millet we call a grain. And, and millet and amaranth, for example, uh, are not really grains. They're actually seeds, but they're treated like a grain. So I think that anything in one of those three spheres is a great thing to have a massive amount of on hand. And when I say massive, that doesn't mean your garage is full to the roof, but it means a hell of a lot more than a few small packages. See, I can go put up, uh, let's say, five buckets of good hard red winter wheat, and one bucket of that could actually be technically for seed propagation. If I ever got into a situation where I had to, though, I could propagate it all. And I don't even have to propagate it in the form of actually growing wheat. I could sprout it and use that as another form of nutrition. There are so many things that I can do with something like wheat that it makes sense to have kind of a situation where it covers two bases. Another one, would, for an example, would be amaranth. If I had a bucket of amaranth, just one five-gallon bucket of amaranth, the reserve that I have in there in protein and nutrition is huge. That's a massive amount of amaranth. But it is, I have no idea how many seeds that would be. Those individual tiny seeds, I have to believe there would be more than a million amaranth seeds in a, fi a full five-gallon bucket. There has to be. It, it's, it's, it, to me, it would be in the tens of millions of seeds, maybe more. But think of how much I can propagate with that at the same time. It does twofold. If I go out and I grow any type of shelling bean that can be dried and saved, when I save the bean, I'm also saving the seed. And I think that if we build a huge stock, let's not say huge is probably the wrong word today. I don't know what's wrong with me today, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, but if we build a large stockpile of seed that is also either dried legume, dried seed, or dried grain that can be eaten, we have the ability to use some portion of it to produce for us again, and some portion of it for actual food. And that's really a big deal. 
It really is if you start thinking about that. Because it starts to steer you away from maybe just building up your five-gallon bucket of beans from Pinto's at the store. Because you have no idea what variety those are, where they come from, whether they're going to propagate well for you or not. You have no idea. The same with any kind of dried corn product or anything like that. All of a sudden, going out and actually acquiring it from a known source so that it can be a seed stockpile and a nutrition stockpile starts to take on a bigger role. Um, I also think we need to think about certain things that maybe we don't grow. And this is more for people that have larger pieces of land or places where they can guerrilla garden and get away with it, especially with maybe with some permission. It would still kind of be guerrilla gardening. Um, where there are certain plants that we think of that produce a lot of food uh, in the form of like plants like a squash, especially things like winter squash, like a blue hubbard or a pumpkin or, or things like that. Those plants, while they produce an awful lot of flesh, uh, you know, a, a vegetable flesh for us to eat, let's say a butternut squash, a large butternut squash produces quite a bit of food, but inside that little seed pocket, there's a ton of seeds in there. A large pumpkin is another perfect example. Those seeds are a, a, another form that can be saved for both propagation and nutrition. When the Indians grew the Three Sisters Garden, a portion of the beans and of the, uh, the, the, the squash seed and, uh, of course, the, uh, the corn were set aside for propagation in the future. But it wasn't like, you know what, they took the pumpkin or squash or whatever kind of squash it was and ate it, took the seeds they needed and discarded the rest. Those seeds were also a crop. The squash seeds were considered a major crop because they have a high oil content and a high protein content. And they have a high fat content. So getting through a lean period where you're trying to live on squash, corn, and beans, and you don't have very much fat because uh, you know the, the hunting has been light or whatever, relying on those seeds brought in a source of essential fatty acids and oils and, and, and fats. And folks, we need fat in our lives. I know that America eats too much of it. But if you try to live with zero fat, it will kill you quicker than any other deficiency. There are actually four forms of nutrient. And one we don't really want to use to excess, and that's alcohol. It's treated totally different. It's basically a, a mutilated form of carbohydrate. But it doesn't work like a carbohydrate at all, metabolically in your body. And then we have carbohydrate, fat, and protein. If you have no protein, eventually you will die. If you have no fat, you will die relatively quickly. If you have no carbohydrate but sufficient calories and protein and fat, you can live a long, happy lifestyle. It's difficult, but, it can, but you can. A little bit of carbohydrate, and then the rest of your diet based on fat and protein, you can live just fine. Just fine. And... That's something that's deficient in a lot of heavily vegetation-based diets. So these seeds, because the beans aren't going to do it for you, but the seeds and the grains bring some of that back to the table for you. So that's something else we need to think about from a nutritional standpoint. Let's start talking about how we build up our seed vaults. One of the things that I've taken to doing is right around this time of year, there's all these seed displays and all these stores all over the place and people put clearance on them because most people are stupid and don't fall garden. You know, they think like gardening is for like, you know, March. And that's it. You know, you buy your seeds in March, throw them in the ground in April and you're done. Where well, this is some of the greatest gardening periods of the year. 
but yet the seed sales go down and they want to make room for you know plastic crap to come in to sell the kids. So they put all these these things out there. I buy the crap out of seeds this time of year when they go on special, but there's a big but. Those seeds have sat out in, you know, a lot of times like at a Home Depot or something, they might have been outside in that area in the garden center, come back in, they've dealt with fluctuations in temperature, humidity, whatever. I won't rely on those seeds for long-term propagation, but I will generally get them into the ground if they're a, a fall crop and use them right away. And a lot of times what I'll do with them is I'll save them till the spring if they're going to be a spring crop, and I'll just over, I'll over sow. If I was going to plant 10, I plant 20. If all 20 germinate, great. If they don't, I call, you know, if they don't, I still end up with a 50% germination rate. It'll still give me the 10 that I wanted. And I propagate them, and then they become a new store of seed. And that allows me to find new varieties and, 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 and just kind of keep branching out and always acquiring. So I've been asked about that, you know, is it worth buying seeds when they're put on special at the end of season. Absolutely. Even in that environment, they should stay fairly viable for two to three years, easy, and some types of seeds might stay viable for ten years, just like that. You know, I gotta be honest with you, my grandfather had this little box he kept all his seeds in, and he just set it on the shelf, you know, in the in the kitchen up on top of the one of the counters. That was it. There were little paper things, and he rolled them up, and, and that was it. Some of the seeds he put in little, like, used pill bottles or whatever, and his seed produced well every year. I take it to a little bit more of a, a level. Of course, I'm saving a lot more seed than he did, but um, I think that we can overthink this. Seeds are designed to persist. That's one thing we need to understand. Um, I also think that it's important that if you want a large variety of seed, we have certain rules with saving seeds. For instance, if you plant certain, you know, two varieties of some vegetables or plants, they will tend to cross-pollinate and you'll end up creating your own hybrids. Not that this in its in of itself is bad, but you don't have the original variety and oftentimes the second generation of the hybrid will not produce true to form. One perfect example of this is corn. Corn can pollinate up to miles apart, but you certainly don't want to, you know, just a little bit away from each other, two varieties of corn growing that are open-pollinated at the same time. So even if you stagger your crops, like I could plant some corn, I could wait about three weeks and plant some more corn, and maybe I get two varieties out through this, this, you know, this planting season, but it's going to be hard for me to push three or four varieties. And if I want to preserve three or four varieties, how do I do that? Well, it's very simple. I stagger varieties one and two this year, and then next year, I plant, I plant and stagger varieties three and four. And I can do that with anything that I'm worried about cross-pollination. Let's say that I want to um, grow several different varieties of winter squash. And I don't want cross-pollination with them. And they're also very space-consuming. Winter squash is vine, and they grow, and they get huge, and they take up so much space. So I might plant you know, one or two varieties this year, one or two varieties next year, and keep rotating that. And that way, I, the big thing here is so that I can always have new seed stock. So I can rotate the seed stock out. Now, if I have a very large quantity of seed, and I have a new, fresher you know, quantity, what can I do with that old seed? Well, I can trade it, I can give it away, I can propagate it, I can consume it. There's all these different things that I can do with that if I remember that many seeds are actually food. I want to give you guys, though, a way 
to deal with squash because squash is something that a lot of people really love, especially all these different pretty varieties of winter squash. They're a great seed to save. They're highly valued by people, so they're great to have in seed exchanges. If you have some cool squash seed, I guarantee you people are going to want to exchange seed with you. But they do have this propensity for cross-pollination, and some of the results are not good at all. But that has led people to believe that basically I can only grow one variety of winter squash. There's actually four primary varieties of squash. You can grow one of each. But of the traditional winter varieties, that's the one that I think a lot of people would really like to spend more time you know, cultivating several varieties of. So people feel like, well, I can't do that because I'm going to get this cross-pollination. If I save the seed, I'm going to get this, you know, this, this terrible result. And sometimes, like I said, they can be really nasty uh, results. It's, it's just kind of weird what happens with certain varieties cross. Well, all you have to do with squash, and this is actually very, very simple, is observe your plants. And squash plants have a female and a male blossom, and they're very easy to recognize because the female blossom has a little baby squash with a blossom on the end of it, and the male blossom doesn't have the baby squash. When you spot a female blossom, keep an eye on it. The day it just starts to open a little bit, pry the blossom open, get one of your male blossoms of the same variety, and then take the stamen from the male variety and, and dabble it on the uh, the pistils of the female blossom. So the little plant parts, the little flower parts. Just take the flower, pull the, the leaves off of the male, shove it into the female. Okay? I know it sounds a little graphic. This is plants, though. This is asexual reproduction, folks. Nothing graphic here. Take some paper tape. Tape your female blossom shut. Within a day or two, it'll fall off. No other pollination will occur Mark that stem somehow, put a little tie wrap on that stem or something, uh, maybe right on the tie wrap, like a little label tie wrap, the date that you did the pollination. And then if you do that with a few of your female plants, those are the ones that when you open that squash up, you, re you take the seeds out of, and you know you have a pure cross-pollination. So this can be done uh, with anything. But we definitely want to make sure that we're doing a lot of rotational planting. If we have seeds that we haven't grown that variety for two years or more, we need to grow them this year and get fresh seed stock into place. I also want you to think about developing stocks of wild seed. Right now in my garden... I have two great, huge lamb's quarter plants that are going to seed. And uh, I think a lot of people think I'm crazy for bringing lamb's quarter into my garden, but I love to eat lamb's quarter. I actually just uh, put a picture of a salad I made yesterday up that one of the main ingredients was lamb's quarter leaves off these plants. Now, I'd actually like to cut these plants down right now. They're actually in the way I'm ready to plant new stuff, but the amount of seed that I'm going to get off of these two, these plants, I have a video that I put out Uh, not too long ago, I have I have lambs quarters this year that are six to seven feet tall, and now they're like falling over. They're so big, and I'm just waiting for the seed to develop to the point where I can go ahead and cut them out of the ground and harvest that seed. Because I'll have a massive amount of lambs quarter seed. Now, why would I want that? Well, number one, high in protein. It's a good nutritious uh, product. It is a good uh, a good basically grain substitute, like we talked about earlier. But the other thing is I have all of this land up there in Arkansas, and I got this land up and down the road and all this, you know, basically what amounts to public easement and, and all these places that anybody can just go and, you know what, you throw some seed balls of lamb's quarter there where it's already growing a little bit, and all of a sudden we've got more of it. Now, that becomes something that I don't have to really pay attention to, I don't have to work with, but I can go out every year and harvest more seed. And I can use the seed as a grain, and I can use it to propagate. And this lamb's quarter that I have, 
is lamb's quarter that I harvested from a park only a couple miles from my house. But let me tell you why I did that. I walked out to that park one day, and I was walking down the trail, and I look, and it hadn't rained for like a month, maybe longer. And in this field, everything was brown. I mean, brown to the point if somebody flicked a cigarette in there, it probably would have caught fire. And I saw this little clump of green. And I went over, and there was a few lamb's quarter plants that were hanging on. And they weren't getting any special irrigation or anything like that. It's not like they were in a depression or anything and everything else. They were the only things alive in this field. And I go to this park often. So what I started doing, and there's a creek near the park, uh, so I took a little can with a rope, because it's like a steep bank, and I would pitch this can in the creek two or three times, and I watered these lamb's quarter plants in the wild for a few months until the rain came back. And then they took over for themselves, because I knew they were particularly hardy to deal with drought. And then when that, you know, last year, when they went to seed, I collected some of the seeds, and I've grown some of them around my property. And I cut most of them when they were small to use as salad greens, But I let a couple of them grow really huge, and now I'll have a huge amount of seed from a second generation that was cultivated in my garden. You can do this with anything that produces seed. You know, anything that's a wild edible, a purslane. I have a, a very, fairly large stockpile of purslane from wild harvested purslane as well. Um, all of these things can become part of your seed vault if you'll just, you know, kind of think a little bit outside the box. If we're going to have a seed vault, we're going to have to store seed. If we're going to store seed, we can go to extremes. Uh, we can, you know, triple seal, triple pack, uh, bury in the ground, build storm shelters to keep them in. We, you know, we can put an alarm system around and go nuts, right? Or we can just understand that seeds basically have three enemies. They are light, heat, and moisture. If we can minimize light, heat, and moisture, we get an extremely long life expectancy of, out of just about any seed. Seeds that you're going to have the, the quickest breakdown with, the ones that are going to have the least amount of storage capacity, are going to be seeds like squash and pumpkin, spinach, uh, sometimes beets. Anything with a high oil content is going to break down and become, uh, you know, the, basically the oil becomes rancid and the seed dies from the inside. But even seeds like that, I've propagated four-year-old spinach seed that was just sitting in a, in a, in a tin that I found uh, that my grandfather had saved. So even those seeds will do well. And that's the big thing, light, moisture, and heat. So if you said, well, what's the minimum I can do to make sure that my seeds are okay? Uh, you get some type of um, light, you know, an opaque container. Uh, I like to use, you know those red containers that coffee comes in, the plastic ones? I like to use those. And then I place my seeds into a, you know, either the envelopes they come in or little envelopes that also block light. And I roll them up and I have them labeled. I put those into Ziploc baggies, push the air out of the Ziploc baggie, Ziploc the Ziploc baggie, and place that into Uh, these contain the uh, coffee containers, and I put the lid on there. So I've got multiple levels of light uh, protection. So that takes care of the light. As far as heat, I keep them in the house. I don't keep them in the refrigerator. It would be better, but I don't. Uh, when it comes to things like five-gallon buckets of grain, those are kept in a climate-controlled environment as best that I can, and they're stored as food, right? But I'm talking about smaller seed stores now with uh, with this this type of storage. Uh, for moisture, what I do, and this is so simple, 
is inside the Ziploc baggie, I put a little little handful of white rice, which acts as acts as a desiccant, right? So that rice uh, is very prone to to absorb any moisture. So if any moisture does happen to get in with my seeds, the rice will tend to absorb the moisture faster out of the air than the seeds will. I can buy very expensive commercial uh, desiccants, or very it's not expensive. I just buy kind of a large variety, a large quantity of it. Or I can just, you know, out of my rice storage, take a little handful of rice and put it in with all my seeds. And then in my uh, my my uh, c- containers, my coffee containers, I put a handful of that right in the bottom as well. And it just helps keep some moisture down. It's so cheap, so simple, so easy. Where did I get this? I learned this from my grandmother. I would go to my one grandmother's house, and it was, this is when we were living in Florida, and I would use the salt shaker, and the salt shaker would always get jammed up, you know? Uh, my other grandmother's house in Pennsylvania is humid in the summer as well. Uh, I'd go to use a salt shaker. It never get jammed up. The one, a little kid, you know, I don't know. One day I look in there and I go, Grandma, what's that in the salt shaker? And uh, she goes, it's rice. I said, why? She goes, it keeps the salt from getting jammed up. So I go back to Florida, you know, from summer vacation. And my other grandmother, I got this great idea, Grandma. Let's put rice in the salt. She thought I was crazy. But she humored a kid and put it in there, and it ended up being in there for the rest of her life because it worked. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't understand how this worked. I thought you put the rice in there, and since the rice was bigger than the salt, it moved around like a rattle, right? And it kind of just like kept breaking the salt up. What it was actually doing is the rice was absorbing or absorbing any excess moisture. So instead of the salt becoming moist and caking together, the rice absorbed it. So there you go. Cheap, simple, easy desiccant. Way to absorb that extra moisture. Can you keep light, heat, and moisture away from your seeds? Consider five years of baseline for storage for for 90% of your seeds. Don't let them go that long without propagating another crop. You know, don't rely on that. But I think one of the things that we have to understand is germination rate. Seed doesn't necessarily go bad. I think there's a lot of people out there here, you know, what's the storage life of this? Or people, I had somebody email me the other day and go, but Jack, what's the storage life of a, of a, of a water filter? Because the manufacturer says it's three years. Well, the manufacturer's covering their butt, folks. A water filter's a mechanical device. There's no food in there. It's not gonna rot. It's once you take possession of it, they've lost control, and they don't know what you're gonna do with it or how you're gonna treat it, and that's as long as they're willing to let their ass hang in the wind, but a water filter properly stored is freaking, it's, until you use it, it doesn't change. It just sits there. Now seeds, we can't say that about. And we can't go that far with a seed, but we also have to understand that seeds don't go bad. What they do is they they slowly die. The life inside them fades out. But just like we could put, you know, it would, asking what the life of a seed is is like asking what the life of a human being is. Let's say I put a thousand babies all born on the same day in a room together, and we said that the you know they're all males. The average age of a male in America today is seventy two or seventy four or whatever they lie to us and say that it is. And uh, so it's 74, let's say. So does that mean that on their 74th birthday, all 100 of them are going to drop over and die at the exact same time? No. Does it mean that when one is 80, there's anything inherently wrong with them as a human being? Or are they still a viable human being if they're still around? 
Of course they are. Does it mean that all of them will live to be at least 72, or out of that thousand will some of them die from diseases as infants? Some of them have congenital defects that may never see their 20th birthday. Some of them will get run over by a car because they're in the wrong environment. Some of them might have allergies and succumb to something as simple as a peanut and die. But the, the vast majority will kind of make it to the age of 72. Some will make it longer and some will make it less. Well, the last explanation is kind of the one that we would all say, yeah, that's how seeds work. If we say that a seed has a life expectancy of five years, it doesn't mean that if we have a thousand seeds in five years, all thousand of them should grow. doesn't mean that at all. doesn't mean that they should all grow a year from now. Seeds have what's called a germination rate, which means if I take a hundred of them and throw them on the ground and treat them all the same way, the way they're designed to be treated, give them the right environment for germination for that species, and it's all fresh seed from the first, you know, just one season stored that might start off with a germination rate of 90 or 95%. 90 to 95 out of 100 will germinate. Doesn't mean that they'll survive to, to maturity. They'll germinate. Now it's up to you, the farmer, to get them to grow. In the second year, that germination rate might drop to 85%. The third year, that germination rate might drop to 78%. In the fourth year, that germination rate might drop to 60%. These are arbitrary numbers. They change based on the plant, storage capacity, etc. But all that happens is the number of them that are still around drops. Now, unfortunately, unlike people, you can go breathing, breathing, not breathing, breathing, smelling bad, decomposing, breathing, breathing, not breathing. You know who's alive and who's dead. With seed, stored right, you look at your seed and it all looks the same. There's no way to really know whether that seed will germinate when you plant it other than to plant it. So once we understand germination rates, we get out of a lot of the hang-up with, will my seed last? And we simply understand that if I'm going to end up with a germination rate at five years of 50%, and I want a 1,000 viable seeds, then I just need to store 2,000 today. And seed is so easy to produce and so inexpensive in reality that doing that is simple. I mean, if we look at something like lettuce with those numbers, you buy a little tiny packet of lettuce seed, it's probably got about 500 seeds or more in it. You grow one lettuce plant to where it goes to seed, and I suggest you grow two to three so you get some genetic diversity there and you let the plants you know, of the same species cross-pollinate but you grow three or four black-seeded Simpson lettuces that you let go to seed, and you collect the seed out of there, you're talking thousands and thousands of seeds. So all of a sudden, whether or not they all survive five years, eh, I don't care. This is These aren't puppies, folks. You know, they're not even goldfish. They're freaking seeds. Half of them die. So what? As long as half of them are alive, we're good to go. So if we take that approach, we look at germination rates, and we can look up with any seed what those germination rates would be expected to be after certain years of storage. And we can even look at it 10 years ago, 20% germination rate. I want 2,000 seeds, store 10,000 seeds. I've got 2,000 seeds 10 years from now that should produce for me. I might have to plant them all, and I might just get a surprise when I do that. Right? I might find out that far more of them will germinate than I thought they would. I have a lot of faith in seed germination because I've abused seed to see what it takes to kill it. I've left seed packets sitting in my shed, heat, moisture, everything. You know, 
sit out in a shed for two years, put it in the ground, and guess what happens? Boop, up it comes, it grows. So I think if you do the right things, you extend that. I also know that there was research done in the Middle East, I think somewhere around Jerusalem, They found this, uh, this old, like, ruins and stuff, and they had some things in there, like the big, you know, vessels they stored olive oil in, and actually had some olive oil in the bottom of them. Obviously, it wasn't, it wasn't any good, but they were able to take genetic samples of the olive oil and, you know, find out interesting things. But one of the things they found was some date palm seeds that had been saved. And their best estimates that this dwelling was over 2,000 years old. So, they said, the hell with it. Let's see what happens. And they planted the seeds. Some of them grew. 2,000 years, and some of them actually grew. Seeds are a store of wealth. That's something we really need to understand. The other thing we need to do is we do need to get involved in seed exchanges. I think seed exchanges are wonderful because they allow us to multiply our efforts. I'm growing, you know, a, a variety of black kale. You're growing a variety of blue kale. We let some go to the seed and we swap. And all of a sudden, the genetic diversity is now in the hands of two people instead of one. And I think it's really important that we understand that. You know, one of the uh, principles of permaculture is that the uh, potential for the extinction of a species is highest when that species has a population density that is extremely high or extremely low. And what that means is for a species to survive, what we want is for its population density to be moderate, but we don't want it to be low. We don't want it to have a low overall number of animals, right? If we only have 10 of something left and we lose one, we've lost 10% of the entire species. If we have a thousand of something left and we lose one, we've lost one one thousandth of uh, the species which is a lot easier to recover from. So the minute that you take a rare variety of seed and begin to propagate it and produce new seed, the probability that variety will survive and be here for your grandchildren to grow. And think about this. We've lost 97% of variety in the last 150 years. If 150 years ago you were holding a dollar bill, and that represented all the varieties of plants that we grow and cultivate, apples, pears, tomatoes, beans, peas, you name it, all the common stuff, and all the different varieties of those. And that $1 150 years ago represented that. If today you were to hold up a monetary representation of that, it would be three pennies. You know, funny, it kind of works out where it matches inflation, doesn't it? But it's not funny, and that's what's happened. And if we want to preserve what's left, we need to make sure that we have a sufficient quantity being reproduced. So the minute you do that, and I do that, And then we reach out and we exchange those seeds. And I begin propagating what you were propagating and you propagate what I was propagating. Our, our odds of that species, that variety will continue, goes up even further. So I really recommend that you look at seed, seed exchanges. Uh, I think people are doing it on the, uh, on our forum, uh, in our, uh, our, our, uh, you know, our, uh, what do you call it? Um, what the hell do we call that thing? Our swap meet form, our swap meet board, which you don't see, I think, until you do like 10 posts or something like that. That's to keep spammers out of it. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, the Seed Savers Exchange is great. Uh, Johnny Max and the Queen have a great seed exchange called Heirloom Seed Swap. Uh, definitely check out these seed exchanges and maybe pick one or two varieties 
of something special and unique that's kind of not really grown a lot anymore and start propagating that. Look for somebody else that's doing the same thing with something different and trade those varieties and keep these species going. Uh, make them part of your personal seed wealth, but also, you know, be a good steward in making sure that they remain part of our collective wealth uh, on this planet of biodiversity. That's very important. I think sometimes people are afraid of words like collective wealth because they think of things like communism. Well, there, there is certain things that we have to look at as collective wealth. You know, if we don't look at water as collective wealth, for instance, then who does it belong to? Because it, it's a, it's a, 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 it moves, right? It might be in your pond today, but it's in the sky tomorrow, and then it falls in my pond the next day. It's a collectively, you know, it's a collective, it's a collective wealth of our planet. It's not so much about ownership and distribution. It's about individual responsibility because it's bigger than just you, if that makes sense. So we do, I think, have some burden to preserve the collective wealth and the biodiversity of our seed stocks. That doesn't mean you have to do it all yourself, but if you just do one or two varieties, and everybody else listening to me does that, all, when you, know, you open these catalogs and you see all these, these varieties of tomatoes and beans and things like that that most people don't even know exist, that people went back and see, people did this stuff for the last 50 years. People went back and found these things and found these little heirloom collections of seeds and propagated them back up to sustainable levels. A lot of these were saved. I would hate to think that when my grandchildren or great-grandchildren are walking the planet, that they can choose between Monsanto corn A and Conagra corn B. I'd like them to have all the choice that I do today and possibly even more by finding some of these ancient varieties that we're not even thinking about using anymore. And if we don't do this, it's what's going to happen. This diversity will be wiped out. I also think we need to, if we're going to do this, learn more about saving seeds. And as I said, today's show really isn't about saving seeds from a standpoint of separation rules and what you do with a tomato versus a pepper versus a squash to, uh, to get the seeds out for propagation. So I'm going to give you um, a resource today that I think is probably the best resource I could possibly give you for more information on on those types of things, and it's the International Seed Saving Institute website. And you can go there and you can put in, any, you can look at any kind of seed, and it'll tell you all, you know, what you do, how far you have to keep it planted from other varieties, what to do to maximize separation distances. If you can't, if you can't get the actual separation distances, you know, things like planting other things in between them and what to plant. Uh, how to get the seeds out, what process to use. So check out the International Seed Saving Institute website, probably the best website that I know of on the subject. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about saving seeds and some misunderstood terms today. There's a lot of manufacturers out there today selling you know, what they call survival seeds. And they usually say something along the lines of, and these seeds have not been tampered with in any way. They are all 100% heirloom variety. And that's fine. It's not, not true or anything like that, but we need to understand exactly what that means and what we need out of a seed to be able to save it. The first thing we need, this is the only thing we need from a seed for it to be a variety of seed we can save, is it for it to be heirloom. We need it to be what's called open pollinated. An open pollinated seed simply means that it derives its, its ability to reproduce from another of its kind. 
So if I have an open pollinated variety of corn, once that corn grows really tall and the tassels form on it, and the little cobs are beginning to form and that silk's coming on it, it's the, it's the pollen from the tassel uh, that, that ends up on the silk, and without that I don't get corn. Right? It has to be produced from another variety. And it's true to form. It's a single variety of corn, or it's a reproductive hybrid, which we'll get into in just a second, because there are reproductive hybrids. And that means that as long as I plant that plant and I give it what it needs to reproduce, it'll produce viable seed and I can plant it again and again and again and again. This is not really has any, anything that necessarily do with whether something's heirloom or not. It's just that all heirloom seeds will tend to be open pollinated because if they weren't, they couldn't become heirlooms. If that makes sense. If it doesn't, it'll make perfect sense when I explain this. An heirloom seed is simply a line of seed that's been propagated over and over and over again and has become basically like an antique. It's a line of a variety. So heirloom seeds could be something as simple as we say rattlesnake pole beans. And those are an heirloom variety of, of bean. And those go back to the slave days. And they've been propagated by lots of people throughout the South and Southeast United States. And uh, they're a great variety of bean to grow. And yeah, that's an heirloom because we know where it came from, we know what its history is, but if your great-grandfather got a hold of some of these back around the turn of the century and started growing them, and saved his own seed, and you're the Smith family, they might be the Smith family rattlesnake pole bean. And that's its own heirloom. Because it's been handed down from one generation to the next, and cultivated from one generation to the next. And it's become individually adapted to the climate that you've grown it in. If your grandfather's been growing those in East Texas, uh, and, and then handed them to your dad, and your dad handed them to you, they're a family heirloom, hence the name. But by the time that happens, if I was growing them in Georgia, even though I could probably take the Georgia seed to Texas and the Texas seed to Georgia and get them to grow... Both of them have individually adapted to the environment at a much greater level. So part of your, your seed saving and your, your seed vault is, is preserving seed that you grow year after year after year in your area to develop that individual adaptation. Right? So those are heirloom and open pollinated. They're kind of, they can kind of switch between each other. One is not necessarily the other though. In the case of, you could have an open pollinated seed that's not technically an heirloom. But any heirloom seed is going to be an open pollinated. Here's the one that gets a bad rap, the hybrid. Hybrid seeds have this terrible reputation today because of all of the, the crap that comes along with um, genetically modified seeds. A hybrid seed is not, 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 just so it goes into some people's heads, not genetically modified. Okay, It is not genetically modified in any way. It is simply that I've taken plant variety A and plant variety B of the same species, let's say two tomatoes, and I've crossed them, and they produce a hybrid. And hybrids generally in the first generation will produce what's called hybrid vigor. Uh, they will take the best attributes of both parent plants and, and just demonstrate them. So if I have a highly disease-resistant tomato and a tomato that grows really large and is drought-tolerant and I put them together, then I tend to get a fast-growing tomato that is disease-resistant, insect-resistant, and drought-tolerant. Now, when I take seed from that hybrid and I plant it in the next generation, sometimes it'll produce the same plant, and sometimes I'll get very poor results. Sometimes I'll get a second generation that's good, but it'll go to crap in the third generation. 
And this is the problem with hybrids. They don't sustain. Except, not all of them don't sustain. Some of them do. There, and this is where you get into an heirloom that's open pollinated that's also a hybrid. An example would be the mortgage lifter tomato. The mortgage lifter tomato was uh, called that because a guy started growing them back in the Great Depression. And when he found this, it was a great tomato species that grew really, really well. So he sold them. He didn't sell just the tomatoes. He sold the seeds. He sold the tomatoes. He sold the plants. And in a few years, he was able to pay off the mortgage on his farm, hence the name Mortgage Lifter Tomato. There were two varieties of tomato. I can't remember off the top of my head what they were. One was from the Berkey line of seeds, though. And, uh, uh, and the other, I, I don't exact, uh, Burpee, I said Berkey. The Burpee seed line. I don't remember exactly what the other one was, but I want to say that one was, um, the heck do they call that seed? Uh, the uh, beef master, uh, or beef eater, or something like one of the beef tomatoes, beef, beef, you know, naming them. But they took these two and put them together, and lo and behold, the result was a reproductive strain that's been grown over and over and over and over again and handed down. The problem with hybridization is you can't be sure that's what's going to happen until you test it out. And in most cases, you don't get reliable reproduction into the second generation. So hybrids are not bad. They don't even not belong as part of your seed vault. They're just not the seeds probably that you want to be going around saving. But there's certain adaptations that they have. And as long as we can buy more, right, and seeds are cheap, we can have them for parts of the year when it's hard to grow other things. All right? And they don't infect your ground. They don't infect your body. There's nothing wrong with them. They're a naturally occurring thing. And the reason they don't take over is because they don't reproduce. And when a hybridization is reproductive, and it does bring a new advantage, it evolves the species, and it does start to take over a segment a segment of the biosphere. So don't see hybrids as something inherently evil. Just understand their limitations in most instances. The last one is genetically modified. Genetically modified seed, to me, I have no room for it on my property. I don't want it planted near me. I don't want anything to do with it. Genetically modified is where people actually go in and at the DNA level alter the structure of the seed. And they do this with viruses. Because a virus is what can invade the cell at the DNA level. So they take a virus and they manipulate it and they put a new gene into it. And then they introduce that virus into the DNA sequence and it attaches this new gene. And then we take something like corn and we make corn that grows its own insecticide, where a corn uh, borer eats it and it dies. You know, we take a gene from a fish and we splice it into a vegetable. These are the types of things that they're doing. This is the Frankenstein science that's going on out there. That's what you want to avoid. Please don't equate hybrid with GMO. Please don't do it because you're doing yourself a disservice. And there's going to be certain things in your area that you want to grow that maybe the heirloom varieties of that variety aren't well suited to you. Or a lot of tomato growers, you're going to do better with hybrid tomatoes. You're just going to do better with them. You know, if you can get a good heirloom that grows in your area, fine. And some of you are going to be in areas where, well, I can grow my heirloom tomatoes, but I'm going to have to start them later in the year so I can grow an early tomato crop with hybrids. Don't you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater because of uh, paranoia or anger. Hybrids existed long, long, long before GMOs did. 
Then the last thing I want to talk to you about today as I wrap up is the concept I've come up with I call planting on foreign soil. And that's both guerrilla gardening and what I call borrowed land. And I think one of the greatest things that we can plant for food storage, for seed storage, and for ease of growing is pole beans. So here's an idea for you. Some of you are going to have friends that have those beautiful lawns that are watered all the time. And they have, you know, nice landscaping and all. What if you approached them and said, look, you've got that big empty fence. It's in the sun all day long. I need a one-foot strip along that fence, and I'll go buy nice lattice from the store, put some spacer so it's not growing directly on your fence, and all along your fence I'm going to plant pole beans. I'll do all the work, which means I'll come over, plant them, and I'll come pick them up, and I'll give you half of my half of the beans, or a quarter of the beans, or 20, whatever percentage you want, and then you're producing beans to eat, and you're producing beans for stock. Now here's the thing. How much work are you going to have to do? You take this strip of land, you lay down cardboard about one foot off the fence. Over top of that, you lay a thick layer of mulch. You drill holes in your cardboard, and in those holes you plant your beans. You lay that thick layer of mulch over there, you're going to have no weed problems whatsoever. It's going to look beautiful. Some of the beans produce really pretty flowers. If you're somewhere a little bit more north, where you can get things like Scarlet Emperor and Scarlet Runner to grow, they're just gorgeous. That grows up on your friend's fence, and it looks so beautiful, and it's pretty, and it produces all this food. And if he's got a sprinkler system, all the irrigation is taken care of. All you do is show up to pick beans once a week. I mean, it's just an idea. Of course you can do this with your own fence, but I find it particularly pleasing to think about the fact that I can use the irrigation system that's designed primarily to keep Bermuda grass or St. Augustine alive to actually produce food in such a passive way. And this might be something you'll find a lot of a lot of you that have wanted to do kind of the uh, the urban gardening thing. And you've wanted to get people as customers, let's say, even as a part-time business, where you could come in and grow on their property and give them a portion of the crop and take the additional produce. This is a very soft sell. Because I'm only going to take the strip of land and I can, you know, do one on your own property and take a picture of it and say, look, this is what it'll look like. And all of a sudden, it's very, very receptive. So those are some other things to think about. Today, I just wanted to get you thinking about seed saving in a different way. I wanted you to think beyond right, the, the basic concept of I have my little bucket of seeds or I have my couple seed vaults that I bought commercially produced and I have my seed package and my seeds that I save every year. I wanted you to start thinking about this stuff as a form of wealth because that's exactly what it is. It's the ability to produce food and energy. You know, if you take nothing else away from today, understand that seeds are energy and food. They're food because we can eat them or we can eat what they produce. They're energy because when we consume food, we're, that's obviously caloric energy. But it also allows, if we have seed and we can produce something like, like a tree, well, we can cut the wood up and we can burn that, right? If we produce oil from soy or we produce oil from corn, then we have something we could, we have petroleum that we can burn. I mean, they literally are stores of energy. If we take the the all, if we take you know a huge field of amaranth, we take all the grain away from it, and we let those stalks dry out, they actually are going to burn very fast and very hot. But they are a form of heat, or they can be composted down to create another form of energy, which is bioavailable energy in our soil. Without seeds, none of this happens. That's how simple this is. Without seed, none of this happens. And the more we can do to plant open pollinated seeds to provide blossoms and things like that for bees, 
the more we can help correct colony collapse disorder. For those of you that read Mother Earth, Mag uh, Mother Earth News Magazine, I think you'd be interested um, to read an article in this month's edition that talks about seeds that are now being produced where the seed is treated with a pesticide. This is not even GMO. They just put a coating on it. And the seed grows and the pesticide's in the plant. And they have these other pesticides that when we spray them on the plant, they go inside the plant. So that anything that takes a bite out of it dies. And we're eating that. You can't wash it off because it's in the plant. And there's a tremendous number of uh, pesticides that are doing this. And they basically said they finally really kind of pinned down colony collapse disorder. And this is one of the main problems. That since that pesticide is in the plant, it's also in the blossoms and it's in the nectar. And these honeybees are taking this nectar from these plants and it's killing them in large numbers. And it maybe not is the only thing. There's mites and there's fungal diseases and things like that contributing to CC, uh, colony collapse disorder, CCD. But it is a, a, a huge aggravating factor because so many of the worker bees never come home. They die very quickly from these pesticides. Some of the plants that have these pesticides in it, a bee that consumes the nectar from the plant, can die within several minutes after doing that. That's that's something I picked up. Well, whenever we start planting things, and we plant sunflowers to save the seeds, and we plant basil, great plant to bring in pollinating insects, including honeybees, everything we're doing is helping you know keep the honeybee around. And why do we have to do that? When there are no honeybees, folks, we are screwed. I mean, they are the conveyors of life. They are what makes these seeds, you know, able to reproduce in this open pollinated manner. If we don't take control of this situation ourselves, we're going to end up in a world in 20 to 25 years, and that's all it's going to take, where we are 100% completely dependent on genetically modified foods. That is the goal of organizations like Conagra, like Monsanto. That's what they want. Remember at the beginning I said, Jack, you can have 1% of any two industries, what would you want? I would say food and energy. Well, they want a lot more than 1%. They want 100% of food, and therefore they actually control 100% of energy. Because without food, nothing runs. And they don't care what they have to do to get it. I, for one, am going to make sure that I have my own wealth preserved in seed stocks, but I'm also doing something for the collective good. I think that's important. I think it's a great lesson to teach our kids. And it's a way where we can understand that we can be independent. We can have all the liberty we want. We can stand up for ourselves. We can be self-reliant. We can be self-sufficient. We can say the heck with the modern world if we want to. We can go as far as we want with that. But yet we still have a connection to everybody else. And part of that is preserving the very things that do this life. And with that, that's, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life from time to time. Or even if they don't. Nobody up there.